Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. Extra Environmentalist. I'm your host, Seth Moserkatz, along with my co-host, Justin Ritchie. And today is an amazing day, isn't it, Justin? Today is an incredible day. We are here speaking with Michael Huseman, and I know I'm mispronouncing his name, so I apologize to him and anyone who can actually pronounce his name properly. And we're speaking with him about his book that he co-wrote with his wife, Technofix, which is the definitive book about technology and all the misconceptions that fuel our modern notion of techno-optimism. We have techno-optimism, especially in developed countries like the United States. I follow the techno-optimism blogs very closely, and I consider myself a techno-optimist extraordinaire. Why do you think you follow the tech blogs? even when we're interviewing so many people who speak about the negative sides of technology. Yeah, I think about that. And I've figured out that it's very much a guilty pleasure for me. I don't really follow a lot of other media. I like to keep my media very slim. I'm, I'm on this thing called a, a media diet. So when I do consume media, it's usually for pleasure. And it's usually just stuff that I find interesting. And the reason I find the techno blogs interesting is because there's always something new and there's always something fascinating coming out, some new piece of technology that's going to reshape the world. And keeping your fingers on the pulse of that is just, you know, it's just like it's like a it's like a guilty pleasure, I think. Well, we will be speaking with Michael about if there is a technology that's on the verge of reshaping the world. And the audio has a slight echo to it, but it is not a telephone, which we're very fortunate to have because Michael used his audio recorder and sent us the audio from that recorder. So we have a much higher fidelity sound than if we just use a telephone. So with that, we'll jump right into the interview. Dr. Michael Husman, thanks for joining us from Arizona today. You're a research scientist with a special interest in sustainability and critical science. You've specialized in environmental biotechnology for more than 25 years, and we're here today to talk about your recent book, Technofix. Yeah, it's nice to be here. So, Michael, after a career in developing technology, 
What prompted you to start writing Technofix in the first place? Uh, yeah, I come from a rather long family tradition of science and engineering. My great-grandfather had a PhD in chemistry, and both my father and my grandfather both were mechanical engineers. So when I grew up, there was no question <laughs> what my, my profession should be. I should clearly study engineering. And so my motivation early on, when I was even a teenager, was, oh, I want to study engineering to help society, to help the environment. And so I picked chemical engineering and went off to college. But after I got my PhD in chemical engineering, I joined a very large multinational company and I was somewhat naive. I joined them in the environmental research department and I thought, oh, they're going to use environmental research to clean up the environment, to help the environment. And uh, I was, as I mentioned, a little bit naive. Uh, they really use the environmental research to change regulations, to make regulations, environmental regulations more lenient. And so at some point it actually came to a clash between me and management. Uh, you know, I defended my research plans, my, my experimental design in front of all these managers and said, well, this is the best design because it's unbiased and objective. They said, we are not really interested in this. We, we would like you to change this to get better results at the end. And I said, well, I can't do it. I want to do unbiased research. And then one manager told me, well, Michael, you are not hired here to do, do science. You can do science on the weekend. And so I, I left that company. And, <laughs> and soon afterwards, however, I realized that even with supposedly unbiased research when i when i looked so many i must have read thousands of research papers and also research proposals in the environmental area and also most of that research was unbiased and objective i i sort of felt that most of the the research actually was not really helping that environment that much there was not much implementation of these ideas to to protect and help the environment and so i got more and more frustrated with this lack of progress and so i started thinking about what's going on here with science and technology can science and technology really help the environment? Can it really solve the problems of society? And so it took me really to study this question for 15 years. This is not just a short project. And at some point in the middle of this project, my wife Joyce joined me and uh, she has a doctorate in statistics and a master's degree in anthropology. And so she could make an interesting contribution to this project because of her cross-cultural perspectives from this anthropological background. So it became a very interesting project for many years. And as a result of our long collaborative research, we believe that Technofix is one of the most comprehensive and thought-provoking critiques of modern science and technology. What is it like working with your wife so closely on such intricate projects? <laughs> well, it is interesting because it results in rather intense discussions over breakfast and lunch and dinner. You know, it's very interesting, but of course it results also sometimes in conflicts in terms of conflicting viewpoints, but it, it results in a more interesting overall perspective at the, at the end of the process. So we wrote different parts of the books and then edited each other's parts. So there was also some cross-fertilization at that level. So that was interesting. In taking the title Technofix, can you tell us why you chose that title and why technology won't save us? A Technofix is basically an attempt 
to solve a problem with technology by addressing only the symptoms instead of the root cause. And it's called a fix because it does not really result in long-term lasting solutions. So techno fixes are attempts to solve either problems caused by previous technologies or to solve social problems. Let me give you a few examples about solving problems caused by previous technologies. Two examples. One is traffic congestion. Traffic congestion, the root cause of traffic congestion, of course, is too many cars, too many drivers, too many miles driven. And the techno fix is to build more roads. And, you know, there's always this, this idea, if we build more roads, traffic congestion will disappear. But it has been known for over 100 years that building more roads attracts more traffic, so it makes the problem worse. So that's a good example of a techno fix. Now, we have a whole other series of techno fixes appearing here on the horizon for climate change mitigation technologies. Now, climate change is primarily caused, as everyone knows, by uh, fossil fuel combustion, CO2 emissions related to fossil fuel combustion. So, scientists try to get, already start thinking about how to get rid of this excess CO2. So, there are these concepts of pumping the CO2 into the ground called geological carbon sequestration. The problem with this is we don't know whether it will stay in the ground, whether it can leak, will leak out. And then when it leaks out, the CO2 leaks out of the ground, whether it will have health or environmental impacts. And other scientists have come up with the concept of pumping the CO2, the excess CO2, into the deep ocean. But then we don't know what happens to the pH, whether the ocean will acidify, and what will happen to the deep sea creatures. And then even another idea is to sprinkle a little fertilizer <laughs> over, over hundreds of square miles of ocean to stimulate phytoplankton growth because as soon as phytoplankton algae start growing, then they suck out CO2 from the air to grow, like you know, any plant does during photosynthesis. But the question there is again, what will happen if you have all these algae blooms all over the ocean? What will happen to the food web, the, the whole nutrient cycles, etc.? So we can see that techno fixes have three problems. The first thing is they always have unanticipated side effects. And the second problem is they are never really providing long-term lasting solutions because they never address the root cause of the problem. And then the third problem with fixes is they cover up symptoms and often make problems worse. And so that's why techno fixes are a bad idea. What are the unintended consequences of technology and do you have any examples of how these unintended consequences uh, stack up or add up? First, I would like to mention that unintended consequences of technology actually cannot be even avoided and cannot be predicted. So that's a pretty bad combination. Let me give you an example why environmental consequences of technologies are inevitable. The main reason is that as soon as you apply technology in a natural system that at least three different ecological laws are violated and by violating these laws you have unintended consequences and these laws have been called by Barry Commoner the laws of ecology. Barry Commoner was an activist biology professor many years ago and he wrote a number of books on that topic. So the first law of ecology is called everything is connected to everything else. So if you apply a technology to a natural environment to manipulate the natural environment because everything is connected to everything else, there will be unintended consequences in another part 
of that system. If you manipulate it in one part of the system, there will be a consequence in another part of the system. Then technology also violates us the second law of ecology, which Perry Commoner called nature knows best. Nature knows best means that nature over billions of years of evolution has really optimized all the interactions, the interactions within this natural systems have been optimized by something called, you know, natural research and development, if you want to call evolution natural research and development. And so, because everything has been optimized to function in a, in a good way, if humans come in with technology to manipulate nature, they basically disturb this intricate optimized balance, and so they will be automatically negative consequences. And then the third law of ecology was called there is no such thing as free lunch, meaning that you have to pay for what you get, i.e. if you extract something from a natural environment for, for your benefit, for human benefit, there is a cost associated with it. There's a price to be paid. And that price is basically the environmental problems we have right now. All the problems that show up are the price that shows up or the costs that show up in a delayed way. And one would think, well, if all these consequences cannot be avoided, at least it would be nice if scientists could be able to predict them. And the problem is the scientific method is not good enough for scientists to predict all these unintended consequences. The, the current scientific method, which has been around now for two, three hundred years, is based on mechanistic reductionism, meaning that you can try to understand the whole by looking at isolated parts, by looking only at one cause and effect re relationship at a time. Like when we do laboratory experiment, we just only vary one parameter to look what effect that has. So we look only at one cause and effect relationship. So problem is we don't look at all the other millions of other cause and effect relationships that might be out there when we start manipulating nature with technology in one area we do not know what all the other consequences might be because our scientific method is not good enough to elucidate all these different uh, cause and effect relationships that are out there in nature so let me give you two examples of unintended consequences just briefly one was from the car culture we have for over 100 years. I am sure that the people who first invented the car, the automobile, did not know that we, that this would take off like, like crazy. Right now we have over 160 million cars in the United States and over 530 million worldwide. Cars have actually killed more people than World War One and Two combined. 30 million humans have been killed by cars. And of course, we are all aware of the unintended environmental consequences from smog, oil spills, climate change, urban sprawl, etc. Let me give you one more example of an unintended consequences in medicine. That is antibiotic resistance. 60 years ago, penicillin was invented, and I'm sure most Doctors were not aware about the problem of antibiotic resistance, and as a result of antibiotic resistance, there are more than 2 million hospital infections each year in the United States alone because of antibiotic-resistant pathogens. So we can see that uh, even in medicine, not only in, in the environmental area, and also in other technology-related areas, there are unintended consequences that are unpredictable and unavoidable. So that's really sort of a bad combination. 
So I always hear that technology is a neutral tool and that, you know, the consequences aren't really the problem so much of the people who are experiencing the technology. It's the people who are taking the technology and using it in the wrong way. And the technology itself is just a neutral tool. What, what do you have to say about that? What you are referring to here is called the myth of value neutrality, that technologies are simply neutral tools which can be used for good or evil purposes, depending on who controls them. And the problem with this myth is, of course, like all myths, they are, they are not correct, but the problem is that all technologies, particularly the technologies that are more specifically designed for a specific purpose, embody the values of the designer. Basically, the development of a technology is a creative process, and because the designer has to make choices what to include and what to exclude. And by making these choices, there are value judgments to be made. And these values are embodied in the final technology. For instance, let me give you a number of examples. It is very clear that most military technologies have a built-in bias towards violence. So they, have, uh, they basically uh, embody the value of violent conflict resolution, if you want to call it that way, uh, that nuclear energy, for instance, because nuclear energy, um, the generation of nuclear energy requires large capital, a large plant. It's very difficult for, for just one individual person to, to manage it. So it requires centralized control. And because of that, nuclear energy has an automatic bias towards centralized control. It can't be controlled in a decentralized way. And also has, has a bias towards environmental risk because it generates radioactive waste. Genetic engineering technologies are commodifying plants and animals. So they objectify nature. There's another hidden value there. Uh, just in genetic engineering technologies. And even something simple as television has a built-in bias, or let's call it promotes individualism and consumerism. So because people sit by themselves watching the screen, the same applies to a computer screen also, but let's talk about TV. They basically interact with the TV screen by themselves as individuals. So the just the TV technology, the television technology, has a built-in bias towards individualism. And why is this really a problem? I mean, should we be worried about the technologies embody values? Well, the problem is, as soon as technologies get diffused through society on a large scale, like 99% of U.S. households now have televisions and 95%, I think, watch them regularly for five hours per day. So if you have massive diffusion of a technology throughout society, then suddenly the values get transferred into the society and the society adapts those values and gets influenced by it. For instance, like with TV, the community life is weakened because... If everybody or almost everybody watches five hours per day television as an individual in front of the TV, then there's less time for social interactions. And the same can be also seen 
with technology transfer to third world nations. As soon as you transfer uh, technology like television, cell phones, computer technology to third world nations, suddenly their whole culture changes in a completely unanticipated way. At least those people are very surprised about it. But it's really not surprising because the technology embodies the values of those who designed them. And so that's why I at least believe that it is dangerous to believe that technology is value neutral. I was reading the other day in Time magazine. It was an article talking about this group called the Breakthrough Institute. And it's a guy named Nordhaus is one one of the people heading it up. And he was saying that because of the challenges that we're facing in our world today, we don't have any other option to develop technology in no way that we've ever done before and to accelerate innovation and because we needed the help of technology as fast as possible. What, what would you say to someone like that? I agree that innovation, particularly technological innovation, is necessary to solve our environmental and social problems. The only problem is that most technological innovation today is used for two overarching purposes. That means building better weapons or improved consumer products to increase profits of corporations. So I believe that as long as technological innovation is focused on maximizing profit and stimulating economic growth, environmental problems are unlikely to be solved. If technological innovation, however, is applied within a new framework of a steady state economy, it has great potential to solve environmental problems. Let me explain what I mean by a steady state economy. A steady state economy is a no growth economy where there is zero growth, which means that material affluence per capita GDP, gross domestic product, and population size both stay more or less constant. So this is different from today where both affluence is increasing and also population size is increasing. So we need to apply technological innovation within the framework of a steady state economy. Let me give you an example why it doesn't work otherwise. If you still have a gross economy, why technological innovation will not necessarily work. For instance, a lot of engineering innovation has been used to build more energy efficient cars. There will only be a reduction of energy use if there's no increase in the total number of miles people drive worldwide. If there's continuous growth in driving and more driving, more drivers, more distance driven, if you build more energy efficient cars, uh, it will not make much of a dent in the total fuel or gasoline or diesel, whatever fuel used. And this is actually um, confirmed by the data. They did some studies and they found out uh, that from 1974 to 1998, there was an increase in fuel efficiency in, in industrialized countries by 20%. So cars became 20% more fuel efficient between 1974 and 98, but total fuel consumption increased nevertheless by 40%. And why? Because people started driving much more, had more cars and drove longer distances by 75%. So this clearly shows that if we want to protect the environment with technological innovation, we first have to transition to a steady-state economy to eliminate growth, to have a steady-state economy and then apply technological innovation to reduce resource use and pollution. Uh, a steady-state economy is necessary before we can start using the technology. Is that what you're saying? 
Yes, that's correct. Because if you use a technology within the framework of a growth economy, it basically it stimulates more growth. That's actually the main purpose of technology today. Economists have done, uh, it's called uh, factor analysis in neoclassical growth theory. They have analyzed that up to 80%, probably up to 80% of all economic growth, particularly the material affluence, the per capita GDP, about 80% of that is due to technological innovation, to having more and better technology. So basically, technology at this point is promoting economic growth. You need to have it the other way around. You need to fix economic growth to zero. I mean, you have to limit economic growth to be, so it becomes a steady-state economy and then use technological innovation to reduce resource use and to reduce pollution. Uh, this is not my idea. This is uh, Herman Daly at University of Maryland, and he w formerly worked for the World Bank. He has written many books on that topic, topic for the last uh, 40 years or so. It's called Steady State Economy, and that's, that's probably the, one of the most important steps to, to reach sustainability in the future, to achieve sustainability in the future. Techno-optimism is a term that I can't even remember where I first came across it, but I, I thought it was very self-defining. And of course it comes to mean uh, optimism about the impact and role that technology will continue to have uh, on the future of humanity. We can focus on all that is bad in the world in spite of the fact that by many accounts the world has never been better. Together we could open up the government and invite all citizens in. We could use technology to help achieve universal health care, to reach for a clean energy future. If America recommits itself to science and innovation, then we can lead the world to a new future of productivity and prosperity. That's what we can do if we seize this moment. And as president, I intend to work with you to write the next chapter in the story of American innovation. We live in a world where uh, chances, the chances of a man dying at the hands of another man are lower than they've ever been. And Matt Ridley, who wrote Rational Optimist, has another TED Talk called When Ideas Have Sex. And it talks about the fact that ideas can just come together and sort of coalesce and self-organize and splurge, you know, sprout new ideas into existence. It goes into the whole Stephen Johnson notion of where our big ideas come from. The rise of the coffee shop, smart people, caffeine, tight spaces together, sprouts complexity, sprouts, sprouts new ideas. So. I see reasons for being optimist everywhere. I'm curious, have you ever Googled anybody? Do you use Google? Uh, occasionally. And one of the things I've used on the Google is uh, to pull up maps. And it's very interesting to see, I forgot the name of the program, but you get the satellite and you can, like I kind of like to look at the ranch. <laughs> remind me where I want to be sometime. By 2020, we'll have computers that are powerful enough to simulate the human brain, but we won't be finished yet with reverse engineering the human brain and understanding its methods. Uh, one of my main themes, uh, and I've 
developed this thesis over 30 years is that information technology grows exponentially. The power of computers, our understanding of the human brain, the spatial resolution of brain scanning, the number of bits we move around the internet. I mean, many different measures of information technology double every one year, every 11 months, 13 months, depending on what you're measuring. Uh, so these technologies will be a million times more powerful within 20, year, <coughs> 20 years. In fact, the speed of exponential growth is itself speeding up. So in 25 years, these, these technologies will be a billion times more powerful than they are today. And it means that even the nature of capitalism itself is beginning to change into something that I call perfect capitalism. When you go into a store today, you're surrounded by products, but you don't know the exact price and value of these products. In the future, the internet will be in your eyeglasses. And beyond that, in your contact lens. When you blink, you will see all the products arrayed with all the prices. You will know exactly what things really cost. That's perfect capitalism. These glasses, by the way, and contact lens will also identify people's faces. You will always know who, do you, who are you talking to. So at a cocktail party, you'll know exactly who to suck up to at any cocktail party. <laughs> Tony Blair liked to say that England derives more revenue from rock and roll than it does the coal mining industry. That's because commodity prices like food have been dropping for 150 years. This morning, you had breakfast that the King of England could not have had 100 years ago. That's how cheap food is today. Clean coal technology is something that can make America energy independent. And by the way, we can create 5 million new jobs in clean energy technologies. This is America. We figured out how to put a man on the moon in 10 years. You can't tell me we can't figure out how to burn coal that we mine right here in the United States of America and make it work. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking about the opposite side of techno-optimism with Michael Hussman. So many of us in the Western world have this kind of grandiose, optimistic view of technology. It's going to fix all of our problems. Any kind of problem that you can think of, technology is going to solve it. Why do we have such faith and optimism in that technology will solve these problems? And what is the origin of this techno-optimism? Yeah, this was interesting when my wife and me did research on that. We had the same question, really. And there's not that much out there written on that topic, but we found out that Agricultural societies have a cyclical view of time. And as long as you have a cyclical view of time because of the seasons, the seasons repeating themselves each year, so you have a cyclical view of time. And if you have a cyclical view of time, apparently you do not have a, a concept of progress because things just repeat themselves year after year and nothing progresses towards a certain goal or to some kind of uh, paradise. However, at some point, probably with the rise of Christianity, there was a switch from a cyclical concept of time to a linear concept of time. And as soon as there's a linear concept of time, the whole 
idea of progress becomes possible. I just would like to point out that even though Greeks and Romans did not have a concept of progress because they still had the cyclical time. But then after that with Christianity the idea of progress started and really took off with the Enlightenment when the idea that reason, particular human reason and with the help of science and technology can promote progress material progress and not just social and moral progress but particularly material progress and the reason why technological optimism particularly is strong today there are at least two reasons so the first one is very obvious technology has been extremely impressive in delivering the goods if you want to call it that way we, we have cars computers cell phones fax machines uh, internet uh, etc however the problem is as i mentioned earlier it is very easy to be impressed by technologies but the problem is we don't know what the unintended consequences will be, not only the environmental consequences, but also consequences on society as a whole and culture. So until the chickens come home to roost, so to speak, we will be very optimistic about technologies. The, the other reason why we are so optimistic is because we are almost continuously bombarded by the mass media by by advertising that there are these new techno gadgets, the, the new products, etc that that will make us happy and, and that will solve our problems but we need to recognize that of course this is a very biased view of technology because there is a vested interest here by companies to sell these technological products and goods and services and so there is a vested interest here to keep techno optimism alive i personally believe that actually Techno-optimism is based to a large degree on ignorance of the relevant facts. We coined something in Technofix, we called it optimism is inversely proportional to knowledge, meaning the more knowledge you have, the less optimistic you will be, and the least you know, the more optimistic you will be. And I have seen it at technical conferences, when a, when a scientist presents something or an engineer presents a new concept, the people who know least about this area are very impressed by the new ideas but uh, if you talk to a person who's working in the same field those people those experts are much less optimistic they have much more guarded optimism so and the problem then of course is that scientific literacy or let's call it rather illiteracy <laughs> in the united states is rather alarming uh, according to a national science foundation report that was published a few years ago 80% of Americans do not meet minimal standards of scientific literacy. 50% of Americans do not believe in evolution. And now it's getting even more interesting. 28% 28 of Americans believe in astrology, 25% in witches, and 33% in extraterrestrial visitors. This is all according to the National Science Foundation report. So we can see here that scientific illiteracy is rather extreme, and that's why techno-optimism is extreme. Do any of those facts shock you at all? I mean, witches are, are pretty far out. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I was really shocked about it, and I have the numbers here in front of me. I don't know whether, you know, it's a National Science, National Science Foundation report. I, I assume it's correct. Uh, it's, it's based on two statistical sampling and surveys. So I know the 50% uh, evolution, I think it's probably correct for the United States, but uh, 
extraterrestrial visitors and witches. That is uh, more bizarre, I agree. Coming from Germany, is, is that different? Do you think that Germany would stack up in a slightly different way? In terms of illiteracy, I think, uh, I do not believe that Germans are quite that illiterate in, in terms of science and scientific knowledge. I also, uh, this whole concept uh, of evolution is much more, or the, the theory of evolution, I think, is accepted in European countries to a much larger degree than here. I don't know whether that's 100%, but it's probably closer to 100% in Germany. Astrology, I don't know. I think there are always people who believe in astrology. Witches, I don't know. I can't. I can't. And extraterrestrial visitors, I just don't know. But uh, however, techno-optimism is, is pretty uh, rampant in, in Europe as well. However, interesting that you bring it up. I remember from the National Science Foundation report that techno-optimism is the strongest in the United States and that in Europe, the European countries, are less techno-optimistic, have less faith in technology. But it's still pretty high, but it is less than the United States. So I don't know whether it's linked to literacy or literacy, scientific literacy or not, but uh, that's an interesting point. So previous to modern culture, there have been many other cultures, uh, the Romans, the Greeks, lots of rises of civilization, and lots of advances in uh, human civilization. Why didn't previous civilization use scientific exploration to develop technological processes is it because we're smarter than they are, are they because we have access to oil what what is the reason that we made the advances and leaps in technology that we did the main difference between previous civilizations and our modern western civilization is their respective worldviews previous civilizations like romans and greeks despite their interest in advancing scientific knowledge believed in universal harmony and balance these ancient civilizations were suspicious of technologies because it was considered an application of brute force and implied the absence of virtues such as self-control and moderation. Now by contrast, ever since the Enlightenment, our modern Western civilization has been guided by the worldview to exploit and dominate nature and to apply science and technology for this purpose. So there have been very few signs of restraint. Now the question whether we are just smarter <laughs> is subject to debate, of course. Our technologies have severely damaged the environment and with the threat of global climate change might very well bring us to the brink of collapse. Going back to our modern worldview about technology, we often talk about the need for efficiency. Our, our economies talk about the need for efficiency, but also I'm always hearing about how new technologies are making us more and more efficient. And that there's a need to move to clean energy technologies to make our electricity and energy use more efficient. What do you think about the need for efficiency and, and clean energy technologies? Well, I believe that efficiency improvements are important for reducing pollution and achieving sustainability. However, total resource use is only reduced if efficiency improvements occur at a rate that is faster than the rate of growth in demand for these resources. I guess I mentioned that earlier. It's a little complicated. Let me explain again with, an, with another energy efficiency examples. For instance, energy efficiency in the Western industrialized nations increased by 50% between 1973 and 2000. So there was a rather significant increase in energy efficiency, but total energy use still increased by 36% 
Why? Because the size of the economy measured as GDP, gross domestic product, grew by 200% during this time period. So in this case, the energy efficiency improvements could not keep pace with the fast rate of economic growth. And that's why I mentioned before the need for a steady state economy. We first need to have a steady state economy and then apply efficiency improvements to reduce resource use and pollution. Now you mentioned clean energy technologies. Well, there's clearly a need for clean energy technologies. However, we need to recognize that the potential of clean energy technologies is often limited and that there could also be significant environmental impacts if these technologies are deployed on the large scale needed to replace pretorium. For instance, let me give you an example from biomass, energy from biomass. In the United States, half of the biomass of U.S. vegetation is already harvested for agricultural crops and forest products. So we already appropriate half of that uh, photosynthetically fixed energy, if you want to call it that way. So if we wanted to, we could only increase biomass energy by a factor of two, because there's only so much land left. We already use half of the United States land, and, and so we would need to use the remaining land area to grow biomass for fuel and we can see this would have environmental consequences because we would crowd out or destroy species, destroy potentially ecosystems. So we can see here biomass energy, renewable biomass energy is rather limited in the United States and there would be unintended consequences if we would increase it much more than it's currently done. The same is true for the worldwide production of biomass for biofuels for instance, if we were to supply the current worldwide energy demand solely with biomass, we would require 10% of the total Earth's surface. This is the same amount that is currently used already for agriculture. Again, we see here we would have to double the land under cultivation to produce biofuels. I don't think there is that land available. We already pretty much maxed out in terms of agricultural production to double the land for agricultural production worldwide would clearly have environmental impacts, might not even be possible. And even if it would be possible, then you would have this, this conflict, this ethical conflict. Should we grow biomass to make fuel for our gas tanks? Or should we make biomass to feed people? So we have this conflict between food versus fuel. So and I, well, I don't I, know. Food's kind of overrated. Okay, okay, fine. <laughs> Along those same kind of lines, we we point to the medical system as a shining example of technology in action. People live longer now than they ever have in, in the past. Is the medical system really the shining example that we think it is? And do we really innovate and alleviate the suffering of people and cure diseases? Or is it something else? Well, yes, I agree that... Uh innovative medical treatments have been impressively successful in alleviating suffering for certain conditions. However, I believe that high technology medicine has been given too much credit. Let me give you some examples. You just mentioned increase in life expectancies, people live longer. When we studied this topic for writing Technofix, we found out that 
the increases in life expectancies were actually the result of better nutrition and hygiene 100 years ago or so and not improved medicine. Another thing is that uh, increasing expenditures for high-tech medical care like in the United States has not resulted in declining mortality. So with all these high technology treatments that are very expensive, uh, there has been no statistically significant reduction in mortality. And even more interesting, most medical treatments have not been systematically tested for their efficacy. One would think that has been done, but actually it has not been done. It is not required by law to test the effectiveness of surgeries or, or certain treatments. And some studies have actually claimed that one third of all cures are due to the placebo effect and not these treatments. You could do sham or fake operations and people still get better, at least 30% of people get better. So the bottom line is that um, high technology medicine as practiced in Western industrialized nations is extremely expensive and as a result takes away resources that could be used much more effectively for disease prevention programs. For example, the universal health care in the United Kingdom, which focuses more on prevention, costs only half as much as the high technology healthcare in the United States. And at the same time, the healthcare performance in the United States is number 37, and in the UK it's number 18. So the, the United Kingdom performs much better in terms of health outcomes and costs only half as much, and it's not as much high-technology medicine. So there's no real link here between high-technology medicine and uh, improved health of a nation. So I, I personally believe that high-technology medicine is a very inefficient and expensive way to improve the overall health of a nation. Low-technology prevention would be much more effective. Someone might be hearing this and maybe they're part of the high-tech medical profession and they would say, oh, well, isn't this just a Luddite point of view? Don't you want to just move back in time and do it with technology? What would you say to that? I think labels like Luddite distract from an objective and scientific examination of technologies in modern societies. As many listeners probably know, Luddites were protesting the advance of the Industrial Revolution in England and smashed machines almost exactly 200 years ago. An objective examination of facts related to technologies should not be based on actions or theories of past or present. For example, what Luddites did in the past is irrelevant to our critical analysis of technologies today and does not really advance the discussion. Our main objective, particularly with writing Technofix, is to make people think critically about technologies and to invite critical analysis, we have included in Technofix at the end of each chapter a section called For Further Thought. Part of the reason that Luddites were going around and smashing machines is because they were fearing for their jobs and also because of the control aspect of technology that these new, I believe it was the spinning Jenny, was incorporating into their lives. And so does technology free us in our lives today or is it driving a process of greater control and exploitation? Many technologies facilitate exploitation by creating a safe distance between exploiter and exploited. The safe distance could be due to a physical distance or a psychological distance, so technologies could 
create a physical or psychological distance and they can also create a distance between locations or between the present and the future so because of this distancing mechanism of technology it is easier to use technologies to facilitate exploitation to use for technologies for exploitation let me give you three examples one example is ocean shipping technologies okay it's a very harmless sounding technology and it is harmless however it can facilitate exploitation of for instance Chinese factory workers and it can cause pollution in China because if we uh, import goods from China and they are manufactured in China under inhumane conditions and environmentally unsustainable polluting conditions, we do not know about it because or we don't feel it or we don't see it really because these goods arrive on our shores and end up in our stores and we just buy it, uh, get it off the shelf, but we are not aware of the miserable conditions some of these products might have been manufactured under. And so so just creating the physical distance between China and us with this technology, this ocean shipping technology, facilitates this exploitation. We would not tolerate this kind of exploitation if the same factory would be next door to us. So this ocean shipping technology facilitates an exploitative situation. The same when we go in a supermarket and buy meat, for instance. We do not know that this meat might have been produced in factory farms with technologies and the animals have been killed with machines and slaughterhouses away from our, uh, from our view. So, again, technologies enable or facilitate this kind of exploitative situation. And the best example, of course, is military technologies. Military technologies with the invention of the gun and then the bomber planes and now the remote control drones even the best example they create both a physical and psychological distance between the combatant and the enemy. The combatant might never see the suffering of the person he or she kills particularly like with a drone you sit at a, at a remote at a computer monitor I presume just push a button and you have no idea what suffering you would have caused. So we can see here that technologies have the potential to create rather extreme exploitation and as a result suffering. Coming back one more time to the Luddites you, you mentioned earlier, of course they were very upset about being herded into factories and basically their life was, was being controlled by machines and there's another aspect to this here because control often technological control is often also needed for exploitation i.e. you first have to get the workers into the factory to be <laughs> controlled by the machine schedule in order for them to be exploited as well so and i think that's why the luddites were so upset about it and they started smashing the machines because they saw the machines as instruments of both control and exploitations because these luddites were just living out in the countryside working at home uh, spinning their yarns or whatever they did with family members around their pace of work was not controlled by by anything just by themselves and then suddenly they were told to tend machines according to a certain schedule and so uh, i think that that is understandable that they were rather upset about it being yanked out of their workshops and homes into you know stinking factories somewhere to do the work for others is it possible at this point in our culture and our development to step back from technology and to avoid a collapse and do you think that we could revert back to like a hunter-gatherer lifestyle of our ancestors 
A hunter-gatherer lifestyle would not be possible for the current world population of about 7 billion. Prior to the agricultural revolution about 10,000 years ago, there were only 10 million humans. And those 10 million humans were most likely hunter-gatherers, and that was most likely the maximum number that the Earth could support, you know, 10 million hunter and gatherers, that lifestyle, uh, the ca carrying capacity of that lifestyle was probably close to 10 million. Although I do not have hard data on that, but I suspect that this was the maximum carrying capacity. Now, with the invention of agriculture, the carrying capacity of the land was increased at least tenfold. There were 100 million humans around 2000 years ago, so the carrying capacity increased tenfold. And then with the Industrial Revolution, the carrying capacity of the land was increased again tenfold. So we can see here that with each wave of technological innovation, first the Agricultural Revolution and then the Industrial Revolution, the human population has expanded rapidly. Therefore, if we were to revert back to a more primitive lifestyle that is not supported by advanced technologies, the carrying capacity would shrink dramatically and billions of humans would not be able to survive. I wanted to ask if you thought that it's possible to avoid a collapse at this point because we have so much technological complexity and all that complexity seems beyond anybody's control is the only eventuality for the whole system just to fall apart. All three preconditions for collapse are present in technological societies. First, we have rapid growth in resource use and pollution. There's still economic growth. There's, there's still, because of this economic growth, we have more need for resources and we will have more pollution. Second, resources are limited and ecosystems can only absorb that much waste. There's a limited waste absorption capacity. That's why we have global warming. There's not enough capacity to absorb the CO2 we are generating. And then the third precondition for collapse that is currently also there is delayed responses by decision makers. These politicians are not acting fast enough to turn things around towards a sustainable solution, towards a sustainable society. And I believe it was David Suzuki, uh, I'm paraphrasing him here because I don't remember the exact statement, who gave a great analogy of our situation. He said something like, society is like a car racing at top speed toward a cliff with politicians at the steering wheel and the rest of us locked into the trunk. And I think that's what, that's what the situation seems to be right now. And I personally believe that without a significant change in society's values, the current direction of progress in science and technology will only implement the existing values of growth, exploitation and inequality and thereby accelerating us towards collapse. America's infrastructure is collapsing. We've had some shocking glimpses. 
the levees in New Orleans, the interstate bridge that went down in Minneapolis, the massive East Coast blackout of 2003. Imagine a month-long blackout. Imagine major failures of water delivery system in the West. Imagine levee breakdowns that can't be repaired. We're headed down the road without much exaggeration of being a second world or a third world country. A massive power outage that affected millions of people in America's Southwest highlighted vulnerabilities in the nation's power infrastructure. The outage caused reactors to shut down at San Onofre nuclear power plant and cut power to wastewater pumps, sending tons of sewage into the ocean. Just the latest example of a crumbling system. We haven't had the kind of investment uh, or the resources to put the investment into it uh, to keep our uh, infrastructure strong and safe. The great Transbay Bridge, longest in the world, is open, connecting San Francisco with Oakland. It's an engineering masterpiece. Last year in September, a crack was found in that masterpiece. A month later, this cable snapped off. It's part of a growing trend that if you build it, it will break. We have not always underfunded road repair in the country. In fact, uh, since the uh, interstates uh, were uh, constructed, or at least construction began in the late 50s, uh, there was a fairly good source of revenue uh, for construction and maintenance of interstates provided by uh, fossil fuel-based taxation. Uh, basically cents per mile or uh, cents per gallon mm -hmm. of, uh, of tax and as long as people uh, were driving more over time that is vehicle miles traveled per year uh, was rising since it essentially has done pretty much continuously since that time then there was a lot of revenue uh, for the uh, expansion and maintenance of our roads bridges and tunnels but now that uh, revenue is diminishing it is and uh, there's a couple of uh, factors that are uh, driving that change, I think. Uh, the, the main one, in my view, is increasing fuel efficiency of, uh, of vehicles, uh, which means that people can drive uh, more vehicle miles but don't pay proportionally more in uh, fuel taxes. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, though? I mean, we're getting more efficient, and that means that, that it's having a, an effect on the, roads and, uh, on the roads and bridges that we're traveling on. Right. Uh, that's right, Kerry. It's, uh, you use the term ironic. Uh, uh, Mary Peters, a former uh, U.S. Secretary of Transportation, used the, the term a policy at war with itself. Huh. Because on one level, we're encouraging people to uh, drive more fuel-efficient cars, I believe, for very sound reasons. But on the other hand, we rely on fossil fuel consumption in order to fund the infrastructure that those folks are driving on. So it, there really is a very deep and profound tension uh, between those two policies. The Pray at the Pump movement held a small prayer protest asking God to lower the price of gasoline. Founder Rocky Twyman led the group in song. Bring the gas prices down. I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Hi, you wanna join in with us? We're praying for lower gas prices, brother. And we have a book here for everybody to sign. It's called The Book of Prayers for Lower Gas Prices. How will I ever change if I am willing to just stay the 
You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and today we're talking with Michael Hussman, author of Technofix. What if everyone just said, okay, no more iPhone 6s, no more you know, iPads, no more TVs. I'm fine with a five-year jubilee of technology development. Let's just keep technology static. Would the economy fall apart instantly? What would happen to the economy? According to factor analysis in neoclassical growth theory, technological innovation is the main driver behind economic growth, particularly behind per capita economic growth, which means per capita material affluence. So you are correct. If technology would be static, we would have less economic growth and we would have less corporate profits. But I don't agree with you that the economy will fall apart because people still would produce all the stuff that is important to them, food, clothing, shelter, etc. The end result might be more something like a static no growth economy, which I called earlier a steady state economy. So that's actually not that bad to have a steady state economy because the transition to a steady state economy is necessary to ensure long-term sustainability. I personally actually do not believe in stopping all technological development. I think we should be selective. We should stop only the technologies that are bad, if you want to call it that way, that are bad for the environment and actually bad for people, for people's happiness and psychological well-being. And we should put much more energy and emphasis into the development of technologies that help the environment, improve the environment, clean up the environment, and also in technologies that are, I call them socially appropriate, technologies that are good for people, that people feel comfortable with, that help uh, people to improve their well-being, their happiness, their interaction, their communities, etc. So, in summary, we should be selective in terms of what technologies we should develop and should not develop. Well, couldn't you argue that any technology that is making people happy is improving their lives? Like, you know, television is making me happy, so is it not improving my life? You bring up television... Actually, they did studies on television, and television does not make people more happy. People who watch television get into some kind of hypnotic state. I think it was beta waves. I'm not, not quite sure. So they are not necessarily more happy. Also, I mentioned earlier that television, as an example again, uh, embodies the values of individualism because you individually interact with the television screen, for instance. And it is well known from the psychological literature that individualism is negatively correlated to happiness and that interacting with other people like in, in marriage, friends, family, friends, uh, etc., communities, that interaction with other people is a main source of happiness. So if you watch television, you're not interacting with other people, thereby getting deprived of sources of happiness. And this kind of thinking actually applies to many other technologies, because technologies are mostly biased towards individualism and materialism, and both individualism and materialism, there's a large uh, psychological literature, they found it's negatively correlated to happiness. So this brings me back to this whole problem of advertising. I think we are just told by the media and by the millions of ads we see throughout our lives that all these technological products and gizmos and gadgets uh, will make us happy. But 
actually the the scientific literature shows they don't make us more happy so we are just duped in being a, a graduate student myself i'm wondering if you have any advice to the researchers and the graduate students out there who are involved with technological developments yeah i believe that students should be aware early in their studies where people end up with a particular specialization they are pursuing. For instance, it might be fun to study physics. I'm, I, 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 I like to study physics too, but the problem is when you look where a large number of physicists end up in their jobs, they are developing weapons. Or consider organic chemistry. It's a fun topic, I'm sure, but you might very well end up in a, in a chemical company, in chemical industry, producing harmful chemicals, basically helping them to produce harmful chemicals. Or take molecular biology. You might very well end up creating genetic modified organisms for the rest of your life, and those organisms could be very harmful to human health and the environment. I'm not, I'm not just singling out these disciplines. This type of thinking applies to many other science and engineering fields. So I I think students need to examine their personal values early on and determine what types of jobs they are willing to do and not to do. So they, they think about it while they are studying and then because they can redirect their studies in certain ways and also redirect their careers in certain ways which is in more in line with their personal values. And this kind of thinking does not only apply to students, but also to professionals already working. If the work is not ethically acceptable, it would be better to find some other work, even though I'm sure it will be a challenge. It will be a challenge to find ethically acceptable work. If, if a person has high ethical standards, it will be a challenge to find work in line with one's values. But, you know, life is a challenge, so we might as well bite the bullet and, and do it right. Uh, finally, I believe that the best and brightest of scientists and engineers should serve as role models by resisting the temptation to work in areas of questionable value. How do you expect the nature of research in science and technology to change in what we're moving into in terms of peak oil and an energy depleted world with all the ecological challenges like climate change? What's going to happen to researchers who have bet on nanotechnology, biotechnology, etc. as more and more investors realize that this field isn't returning the kind of money that they're expecting? Well, as society faces new problems, like you just mentioned, peak oil, etc., there will be new priorities for research to solve these kinds of problems. And hopefully, more research will be devoted for, uh, to the development of environmentally sustainable technologies, for instance, renewable energy technologies, and also renewable materials. Think about all these darn plastics floating around. These are not uh, really based on renewable feedstocks at this point, and they're also unfortunately Unfortunately, not biodegradable. So there is a lot of research that can be done towards a constructive goal of sustainability and environmentally friendly technologies. Scientists then just have to adopt and use their basic skills to apply to these new areas. And that's why I believe that a broad basic science and engineering education is important. I myself actually have changed research areas three times in my career so far because of changing funding priorities. First, in the 80s, 
I worked on microbial fermentations for the production of renewable chemical feedstocks. And then after that, for at least 10 years, I worked on bioremediation of hydrocarbons. And now, the last 10 years and, and hopefully into the distant, <laughs> distant future, I work on biofuels. I had to use my basic uh, science and engineering education to adapt and learn new areas and do research in those areas. And so do you have any thoughts on the university system as the vehicle by which so much research happens? I think there's a general perception in society that scientists and engineers are working on solving the most pressing problems of the day. And I'm wondering if that's true in your view. Well, first of all, universities are a great system for conducting research, particularly because of the academic freedom of professors. So I really am a believer in the university system for research. The problem is, unfortunately, that a large part of scientific research is motivated by two overarching objectives, as I mentioned earlier, to build better weapons and to increase corporate profits. For example, in 2005, 57% of the 131 billion federal research and development budget in the United States, 57% was allocated to warfare-related projects. And I'm sure that many of these projects were done also at universities, probably at national labs and other industries. But 57% of research funding going to uh, military-related projects. And the listeners of this show can decide for themselves whether this type of research solves the most pressing problems of the day. And the other objective of most research is to do things that increase corporate profits. And so most corporate research and development is focused on either creating new products or improving existing products with a primary objective to gain market share and of course, in increase profits. That's the final motivation, of course. But I personally believe that this kind of research does not necessarily address humanity's most pressing problems. Let me ask you, do we really need to change car styles every year? Do we really need better toothpaste, laundry detergent or toilet paper? Some of this research appears frivolous to me, really. Uh, and on top of that, I think it's sobering how little progress has been made in environmental research. Maybe there has been progress made in environmental research, but the problem is very little of this research has translated into positive outcomes for the environment. For example, David Ehrenfeld, he is a professor emeritus at Rutgers University, he founded many years ago this uh, new journal called Conservation Biology. It's a very well-known journal. He's a, he was the editor of this journal for many years, and he was starting to get concerned whether all this research that is published in this journal, whether this would really help the environment. So he said, okay, let me take out three consecutive issues of conservation biology of this journal. And he looked at all 66 scientific articles that were published. And he asked just one question, have these scientific results that were published in this journal, were they used to actually protect or improve the environment? And he found out that only three out of 66 scientific papers in this fancy journal were only 
used to actually help or improve the environment, so a very small fraction. And so this clearly indicates that I believe at least that many scientists and engineers are not necessarily working on the most pressing problems of the day and that research needs to be redirected. So we've been seeing citizens' uprisings all over the world, and technologies such as Facebook and Twitter have been playing huge roles in helping to coordinate these movements. Tweets from Iran coming over to the United States, and of course the uh, the Occupy Wall Street movement is using technology in a huge way. Is this technology serving the 1%, or does it empower the 99% to rise up? Whether technology serves the 1% or empowers the 99% depends on who controls the development and use of technology. Currently, the, technolo- the control of technology is highly undemocratic, despite the major impact of technology on our lives. You mentioned before, we are surrounded by technology from morning to evening, from computers, cell phones, internet, uh, fax machines, cars, airplanes, etc., despite the major impact of technology on our lives, most decisions regarding the development of new technologies are made by scientists and engineers and the corporations and government bureaucracies which employ them. So in most cases, the public is completely excluded from any meaningful debate. Uh, Let me ask your listeners, have you ever cast a vote whether a new technology should be developed and commercialized? Most decisions regarding new technologies are not made in a democratic fashion, but are instead guided by the principle of profit maximization. So in order for new technologies to better serve the interest of the people, the control of technology has to be more democratic. For instance, citizens will need to become involved in what's called participatory design of new technologies. For instance, citizens should be included in the R&D, research and development planning process. This could be very easily done. This is not complicated right now. New technologies are developed in a two-stage process, and we could just add the third stage of citizen participation. The first stage generally is a peer review to judge scientific and technical merit of new technologies. That's done by other scientists and engineers. The second tier is done by business experts who review new technologies to evaluate the business and economic promise. And that's what's generally done up to this point. But I believe a third step should be added by citizen representatives to assess new technologies for social and environmental impact. And this is has not been really done too well in the United States, but it has been done in Scandinavian countries already with, with positive results regarding Twitter and stuff like this. Again, it, it boils down to who controls technology, even though this technology was very useful for the Arab Spring. There were also attempts to turn Twitter accounts off, I believe, that just to turn off the internet. And actually, I, I believe there were basically the government officials were getting nervous and were trying to uh, just stop the communication. And there we see the danger again of technology. The, The danger is that it can be controlled by other entities. And if the government controls our communication technologies, that's very dangerous because before this technology arrived, we just talked to our neighbors, we just met with other people and talked freely. Now this technology can be used to control our interaction by just cutting it off, for instance, or to spy on our interactions with other with other people in an activist movement. I'm, of course, impressed by 
internet technology and uh, World Wide Web and so forth and this, this uh, interaction with other scientists all over the world for instance like in my case instant you know instant uh, emails from across 12 time zones 12 hour time zones for instance within minutes that's very impressive but we need to also be clear that as impressive as it is, it's kind of a, a tru- I don't know how to say, a truncated ver- form of human interaction. Most human interactions are in terms of body language, voice, facial recognition, etc. This interaction via just internet or phone line, like in this case, is actually a very a limited way of human interaction and we might be impressed by the number of humans we interact with or the number of humans that are distant rather distant but it is not equivalent to a human interaction as it was in pre-technological times so we need to be a little bit uh, critical or a little bit aware of that that as impressive as it, as it is it is maybe not as profound the human interactions maybe not as profound yeah, that's very true. I've had the same conversation with my father and my mother over this these same topics because, you know, I, my brothers and I are of a generation where we have used this technology and we are we interact with each other a great deal over the internet and we write text messages. But my parents are, are of the generation where they wrote letters to each other. That's how we were able to, you know, relate it to them and say, you wrote letters to one another in the same way that we write text messages to one another or we... You talk on the phone in the same way that we Skype to one another. Are these technologies just generational? I mean, what what is going to separate my my grandkids from me? Who knows, right? Yeah, that's a, that's another scary kind of I've talked often with my wife about it. As as one gets older, you know, everybody gets older at the same at the same rate. It's really kind of scary how this intergenerational gap gets larger and larger because we see these kids with these iPhones and stuff talking to you know just standing at the street corner, just being fixated on their iPhones or whatever, not even looking up at other, other people. It's kind of scary. But but I'm talking also about intergenerational gap as technology, uh, you know, the, the technological change is so fast that the younger generation is used to much different technologies as the parents or grandparents or whatever. And so at some point there is less overlap in some ways. And so that's it's kind of uh, it's kind of uh, you know, disconcerting, I guess, at some level. How do you think we can change the view we have of technology? Is there a legitimate reason to hope for some kind of paradigm shift? Yeah, I would like to start with a quotation from Albert Einstein, who said that no problem can be solved at the same level of consciousness that created it. It basically means all the problems we have right now are the result of a certain worldview. And unless we change this worldview, we are not able to solve this problem. A change in worldview is needed. And the unfortunate thing is that our current worldview is based on the illusion of separateness. I I mean illusion here because even science has shown that we are all interconnected to each other, interconnected to other species, to the environment, this web of life concept. So the current worldview is an illusion. The current worldview of separateness is an illusion. And major world religions for, for thousands of years have stressed our common humanity. Again, trying to fight the illusion of separateness. Many problems today for instance, like military conflicts and environmental pollution as a direct result of an incorrect 
worldview of separateness, of this incorrect worldview, because as long as we feel separate from each other, we feel okay to control and exploit, we feel okay to kill some enemy, we feel okay to pollute the environment because we are just feeling separate of it. Is that the enemy is just a separate person, so why not kill that separate person? So we, we might even feel ethically justified doing it because our worldview is one of separateness. And so the solution can only come if we change our worldview from separateness to interconnectedness, I would call it. And as soon as we have this new worldview of interconnectedness, many of these problems automatically will get solved, like the environment, if we feel connected, interconnected to the environment, we will not pollute the environment, we will not expand our numbers to the point to crowd out other species, we would not have a growth economy, we would have the steady state economy I mentioned so many times earlier. So our view of the environment would change, our treatment of the environment would change, our view of the economy would change, our whole economic system would change. And you ask whether there is a legitimate reason to hope for a paradigm shift. Well, the bad news of course it it is extremely difficult to change people's worldviews, mental maps or paradigms, however you want to call it. The good news is, as soon as a paradigm shift has occurred, it is basically irreversible. You can't go back to the previous worldview. For instance, prior to the publication of Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in 1960, I believe, there was really no concept of the environment, or not very much. People didn't, there was no environmental movement, but after that, environmental movement started and the environment is now part of our worldview and it will not go away. So the question then is how to best influence a worldview. We believe that the best way to influence a worldview is through formal education at the high school level and maybe even earlier but definitely high school and college level and that's why we our goal is to have Technofix either as a textbook or supplemental reading in science and engineering courses, in social science courses, in philosophy courses. And in order to facilitate the use of Technofix in these kinds of courses, we have a list of questions at the end of each chapter for further thought, as I mentioned before. But we also have created PowerPoint view graphs for each chapter so professors and teachers can use it in in their classrooms. And our vision is, of course, to have Technofix be used in thousands of courses, and this would increase the probability of the necessary paradigm shift. One important thing is, despite all these technological developments and all these techno-gadgets and all, all this economic growth we have had and all this material affluence uh, technology has brought about uh, the last... 50, 100 years particularly, has not increased our happiness. Uh, this is very, a very stunning result and a very disturbing result because one would think that we are doing something consciously here with the development of new technologies to make us all more happy. But in the United States, per capita income rose 2.5-fold from 1946 to 1991. So 2.5-fold. But happiness has remained constant. There, has, there have been surveys done every year, and happiness indicators are constant. And even more extreme, 
Per capita income material affluence basically rose sixfold in Japan from 1958 to 91, and uh, there has been no change in happiness. It looks like we have been tricked by all this advertising that we want all these new technologies, believing that they would make us happy, but instead we spend a lot of money on all this stuff, on all these consumer products and techno gadgets, and uh, they, don't, they haven't made us happy. So that's, uh, that's quite a tragedy, I think, to spend all this energy on the development of new technologies and have so little benefit at the end and at the same time pollute the environment to the point that we feel that our children and grandchildren feel feel threatened by by global warming for instance or a polluted world so it's sort of really a a sad situation that we are not happy and we have damaged or damaging the environment and we spend all this money on it and 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 we still <laughs> we still believe in all these technologies because of our culture and the belief in, in progress and techno optimism closes out our interview with Michael about his book Technofix and the reasons why technology is not going to save us or society. And we didn't get a chance to mention during the interview, but Michael and his wife Joyce have a website, www.technofix.org, where they have a lot of really great resources. If you are an educator and you want to start integrating some of the concepts that Michael was talking about into your classes or develop a course around it, and also you can check out the book Technofix from New Society Publishers that was just published last year. But Seth, I'm wondering, because you fall follow a lot of tech blogs yourself, you follow a lot of the news about technology. I'm wondering if you were convinced at all by his arguments on why we shouldn't develop more technology outside of a steady state economy. Well, you know, Justin, following the technological world, it can swallow you up and just kind of absorb your whole mind and just make you just sit there and wonder about what is going to come next. And the points that Michael made during the interview, I've had conversations with my parents that talked about we are living in a, in a society now that doesn't interact with each other, that doesn't really know what it's like to have interactions and sit down at dinner and have a conversation with 
with somebody. And, you know, really in a a place that has evolved into a world where we rely on technology for just about everything. And whether that's good or not kind of depends on where you're coming from. If you are using technology to get yourself to one place to another using your GPS or you're trying to, you know, connect to somebody on the other side of the world, that can be good. But if you're using text messaging to call your kid to dinner from the next room or you're using it to surrogate yourself a relationship with your mother who lives in the next town over instead of going to visit her, that kind of stuff just, you know, crosses the line. What do you think, Justin? Well, I like Michael's approach because he is a practicing scientist and he's been working in fields of technology using science to develop technology for his entire career. And he's saying that developing technology will not save us or the environment until we change our worldview, until we change our economic system. And he's not saying that all technology is bad and that technology will always destroy us. He's saying that everything about the way that we're using technology will destroy us. So he's just saying that, you know, you can't rely on technology to fix all our problems. And one of the interesting things about listening to politicians and economists talk about technology from the perspective of someone like myself who has a background in physics and engineering is that they don't really understand anything about how difficult it is to make a technology. And all the times that I have spent late nights in a lab wiring circuits together, trying to do all the things I needed to to graduate as an electrical engineer, you really learn how fragile all of our modern technology really is and how incredible it is that computers even work. I mean, the rapid rate at which we've developed these amazing complex machines is just mind-blowing when you think about it. But oftentimes, I think that the reliance on technology that we have by thinking that technology will solve our problems and that we'd get this crowdsourced future where we wouldn't have a hierarchy and where we could just all you know, tweet out and communicate with each other and, and do collective voting has in many ways disempowered us from actually taking collective action. And we see that now with the Occupy movement. A lot of people are using technology to do the base organizing, but then they're moving past it and actually taking it into physical spaces. And the issue is that we've been relying on technology to do too much of the work for us. We've been relying on technology to do too much of the community building. And I think we're really at a tipping point in the history of technology because I was just reading the other day that people are unfriending each other on Facebook at rapid rates, at unbelievable rates. And I think we've really reached peak connectivity just for connectivity's sake. It used to be (laughs) a a few years ago that people would connect each other on Facebook just to have numbers and numbers of Facebook friends. But then young adults like us are starting to understand the importance of disconnecting and turning off and tuning out and how much power silence really has to ignite the creative spirit and to help sanity occur. And so all the smartphones and all of those things are to a very small segment of society, but a segment of society nonetheless, who are young adults who were raised in this technological culture, people are starting to unplug. And I noticed that amongst uh, a lot of the people that I hang out with here in Vancouver. 
I don't know if it's the same for you in North Carolina, though. Well, the majority of the people that I work with who are over the age of, you know, 45 or 50 don't want to touch Facebook. And that's probably for a, a reason that is different from the one that you and I or the one that you just mentioned, Justin. They are afraid of the privacy that it invades. And that's a whole nother issue. Do you allow technology to invade your entire life? Do you let Foursquare know where you are every minute of the day? Do you let do you use your Facebook check-ins and be notified of the newest deals and do you tell everybody on Twitter that you just made the best sandwich in the whole world? Now, if you do, that's great because, you know, sandwiches are exciting and, and wonderful things that I enjoy greatly. But do we allow these technologies to become our entire realities? Do we allow these interactions to become our total realities? I mean, having an interaction with somebody is pretty much invaluable compared to a Twitter follow or a instant message. Now, there are a million different ways that instant messaging and Twitter can be useful, but having that dinner with that loved one and interacting and seeing the body language and the eyes blinking is just something that you can't really understand. And you and I, Justin, are part of the generation who has been in a place where this technology has not been a part of our lives. And we are the probably the last generation who will have that before, you know, the technology goes away but we've been we've been both sides of this coin we've seen what it's like to live with and without this technology yeah and a community news organization that i write for here in vancouver the tai had an excellent excellent column a few weeks ago called shadow workers of the world unite and it was about how we as people who are using social media are shadow workers we are doing the work of major corporations. We're doing the research for marketing firms. We're broadcasting our brand preferences and then people are data mining that out. And why should we be doing that? Why should we be sacrificing our time and our privacy just to provide information to other people? You know, every time you check in on Foursquare, every time you check in with Google Latitude or something like that, you are broadcasting out the name of a, of a business usually. You're advertising for that company. And I really like that word shadow workers because that's what we're doing. We're taking our personal interactions and we're commodifying them through Facebook friendships. And then we are committing a commercial transaction in our interactions on Facebook. And don't get me wrong, you know, I, I do like the ability that we have as a podcast to advertise what we do on Facebook and to advertise on Twitter, but that's exactly what it is, it's advertising. And people have taken the concept of branding just way too far into yourself as a brand, everything as a brand, creating your own personal brand, and now we're just brands walking around broadcasting ourselves in this ideal social media world. and. And it's really reached a point where it really can't go any further because Facebook's IPO is really a turning point where they go have to experience rapid growth for the sake of shareholders and they are going to do ever more nefarious things with that personal data simply to satisfy the rate of growth that they have to to be a publicly traded organization. So do you feel sad that Facebook's made that leap into the public sector, the public world now? The thing is it's inevitable. It was going to happen eventually. The way that our economy works is it's always looking for the next bubble. 
That's how the speculative casino economy works. It's looking for the next bubble. It had the tech boom. It had the housing bubble. It's looking for something next. And so it's and using now it's the social media world. Right. Everyone's going to be the next Zuckerberg. And there's a bunch of people out there who think that they can be. And maybe there will be more and more of them. Maybe I will create an application that instead of allowing people to go out and farm, they can farm on their computer on Facebook. It will take off and I can publicly trade that company. But more and more those financial transactions are becoming further and further detached from actual activities that create value in the real world. If you were investing in a company that was making a truck, I would actually buy that truck and use it. Whereas now the companies that are going on IPOs are making social media uh, connectivity and people can live without social media in the real world. But I was wondering, Seth, what you were doing in your own community to build connection through detaching from the financial casino economy and actually using your money to build a more resilient community around you. As a matter of fact, I have been trying to build some community around myself. There's a program in the local community here in the Raleigh-Durham area called Slow Money. The program is about building soil. So this is all about everything that relates to soil. So the food production, the things that are, that are around food production, like uh, moving food from place to place. And actually, I was just involved in making my second slow money loan to a local uh, couple who are putting together a CSA in the backyard, and they're going to be supplying vegetables and food products to local restaurants. And I am part of this local loan, and all of the revenue that's going to be generated from this loan is going to be staying in the local community. It's not going out. It's not using the banking system. All the revenue, all the job benefits are happening here. And this program is just taking off. It's, it's put out close to $100,000 in loans over the past year. And it's it's just incredible. These types of projects are just really, really important to what the future of, of this economy and what the future of this world are going to look like. Just taking responsibility in your local communities and you know funding projects that you feel passionate about and putting your money where all these ideas are. What are some of the projects that people are doing that you are funding? Um, I funded a CSA today. I've worked with a lady who is doing a regional trucking company. She's actually a mover right now. And she is putting together a business that's going to move produce from farmers around the region. So she's going to move from about Atlanta back up to North Carolina and uh, take produce to market that otherwise would not see a market. So people that are going are going to use her to move their produce around. They're putting together a large fund for a local bakery that is trying to expand. And there's a lot of local bakeries who are buying equipment for their bakery. And there's farmers who are buying tractors. There are people who are looking to buy land. If you check out the slowmoney.com, you can check out all this sort of stuff. It's actually a national organization. And the chapter that I'm working with here is a local one to North Carolina. So Justin, another really deserving organization that I've worked with personally is uh, this extra environmentalist. And we're grateful to have so many people donating from across the planet. We had a donation from South Africa, from Marco, and we also had a donation from Anders in Norway. So two great international donations to support our international podcasting efforts. So thank you guys. And both Anders and Marco were sent our special bonus material for this season. And it is an interview that I conducted at the American Association for the Advancement of Science conference that I was at recently with a guy who has a 
has a special theory about Stonehenge and how Stonehenge was created because of sound interference patterns. And I gotta say that his insights into the ancient mind and caves pretty fascinating. So thanks to Andrews and Marco for donating, and I'm sure they're enjoying our interview on the ancient mind and sound. They are undoubtedly enjoying that interview. And another side note here, Justin also has another side podcast that is part of the Thai newspaper that is the uh, local Vancouver newspaper that he runs the podcast out of there. And it is a great podcast. I just checked it out. I think the initial episode has just gone live, hasn't it, Justin? Yeah, we've been working on this for a while now and the first episode finally went up and I gotta say it was a lot of fun to put together and if you are in Vancouver it's definitely something to listen to if you're outside of Vancouver there's some good stuff but we're gonna be covering a lot of local issues so it may not always be exactly something that you're looking for if you would like to listen to more of the Extra Environmentalist you can always check out our website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com you can find us on Facebook you can find us on Twitter you can leave us a voicemail message you can find us on Skype, where you can also leave us a voicemail message. You can find us on our local radio stations that are, have picked us up in the British Columbia area. If you are a person who thinks that their local radio station would love to have the, the lovely lilting tones of the extra environmentalists coming out of, of your local radio station, please feel free to refer us to them. So many people have started following us on Twitter, and that's so awesome because we've been doing what we can to tweet more, to tweet some interesting things here and there. We've also had quite a few uh, emails recently, and we don't have the time to talk about all of them on the show. However, I did want to mention a great email that Robin from Burnsville, North Carolina sent in, and he really enjoyed our episodes with Morris Berman and also with Stephen Buner. And he asked if there were any studies or any kind of information to back up Morse Berman's claims about college students losing their attention due to electronic devices. He said it seemed like it made a lot of sense, but he was hoping that we had more information on that. And I was able to find some stories about neuroscientists who were doing research and they were saying that modern technology was changing the way our brains work and it was hurting our attention spans. And so it's definitely feasible to make the connection between college students and gadgets causing them to lose their attention. Now, I couldn't find any studies that specifically talked about college students, but I'm pretty sure you could extrapolate that trend out to college students. The other thing that Robin asked about was Brewer's Droop to talk about pseudoestrogens causing different health problems and how it created uh, erectile dysfunction. And so I found some articles about Brewer's Droop in general, but none of them were specifically about handling hops. So I don't know if there's any more information out there about it. Yes, you, that's true. Do you have any more information on Brewer's Droop, Seth? No, I can't think of anything, but maybe uh, maybe one of our listeners has had a personal experience with Brewer's Droop and they'd like to tell us about it. If so, they should send us an email. We'd love to get emails. We'd love even more to get your calls. We would be so very happy to play your phone call on our show all about Brewer's Droop or whatever else that you wish to talk about. Or you can leave a comment on our website on the specific episode you'd like to address. And so Paul from California left a comment on our website and he said he really enjoyed our interview with Steven Buhner but he didn't buy into the whole question about what is the function of humanity and he said that you know whether the answer is to serve God or to dominate nature or care for nature as its stewards or whatever it was it sounded a lot like arbitrary religious beliefs to him and so he was saying that when ecologists name the function of a species like bees to pollinate the descriptions too easily turn into a purpose and he was saying that even though we can see 
that bees pollinate and if they didn't do so then certain flowering plants might not survive in the ecosystem that didn't mean that he believed that bees were designed or invented for that purpose by divine creator or intelligent uh, Gaia or flowers or aliens or anything and so even though the bees have a role in the ecosystem they aren't working from a script necessarily and that the bees and the flowers are codependent and so he was just saying that you know we can live without having to have a quote-unquote function of humanity and that we can make sense of life even though we aren't necessarily part of, of a explicitly designed machine so that we shouldn't have to just feel comfortable having this role and I would say I definitely agree with Paul and that one of the sessions I was at at the American Association for the Advancement of Science conference was about niche constructors and about humans as niche constructors in our ecological niche and there's a lot of interesting information that was presented at the session and hopefully we're going to have some of those people on the show here over the next year but just because humans have a niche and because we are codependent on particular species one of the interesting things is that we are one of the few species that can fully modify our environment to such an extent that we create our own niche that is almost completely separate from a lot of different ecosystem services and we've created our own symbolic niche where we use language and symbols to communicate in a way that no other species can and the question for me is whether that symbolic niche that we've created in the ecosystem serves what's called an ecosystem service does that symbolic niche actually feed back into the environment in a way that we can't detect or tell right now. And I think that's an interesting question for study and for thought for people who know a lot more about niche construction in the human environment. But definitely we don't have to be reliant to think that we have this grand purpose in terms of ecological niches because at the end of the day, if we aren't serving a role in this ecosystem, we're not gonna be here anymore if we're just destroying our ecosystem as opposed to actually contributing an ecosystem service. And we don't necessarily have to take the whole niche concept and blow it into something that it's not. So Paul makes a really great point. Thanks Paul for your comment, it was great to hear from you. Yeah, so once again, thanks for checking us out on Facebook and continuing the discussion there. Thanks for tweeting with us and tweeting more about the show. And thanks for all your emails and donations. And they really mean a lot to us. So thank you. Thanks. Big hug from us to you. And thanks to our blog editor, Luisa, who's been doing an amazing job on getting some incredible pieces out. And if you check out the blog at www.extraenvironmentalist.com slash blog, you'll find her most recent post. And it's a good one. So be sure to check that out. And also thanks to Ian McKenzie for letting us host the question and answer session at the launch of his new film on Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics. And you can find that question and answer session in our RSS feed and on our website as extra content for all of our listeners. That wraps up episode number 37 of The Extra Environmentalist. And for everyone out there listening to The Extra Environmentalist, and for those beyond this show, go out there and make your niche your own. It strikes me more and more that our failure to feel 
at home in this astonishing brain in which we live is the result of a basic initial mistake in our thinking about the world and is in turn the cause of what is beginning to look like the failure of our technology of the fact that everything we're doing to try to improve the world was a success in the short run made amazing initial improvements but in the long run we seem to be destroying the planet by our very efforts to control it and improve it and it strikes me that that is because we are really too simple-minded to understand what we're doing when we interfere with the natural world strongly and on a vast scale we don't really interfere with it because that would suggest that we were something different from it something outside but I think what we're doing is we are understanding it in terms of languages, numbers, in terms of a logic which is too simple for the job, too crude for the job. We understand everything in terms of words or numbers and they're stretched out in rows, in lines, and our eyes have to scan those lines in order to understand them. But when I scan this view, I don't do it line by line by line, I see the whole thing at once. I take it in with, as it were, a wide-angle lens. But when I try to understand the world through literature and through mathematics, I have to scan lines. You know that's why it takes us so long to get educated in school, because our eyes have to scan and organize miles and miles of print. And that takes us 20 years or more to get through it. But life happens changes go on too rapidly for that because you see in the world everything is happening altogether everywhere at once and meanwhile we with our myopic little minds are working it out step by step of course we are greatly assisted by the rapidity of the computer but even so the computer is still looking at things in rows as the magnetic tape goes through and is scanned by the computer it's still all going along in a single track and I suppose then our difficulty is that we have lamentably one track minds in an infinitely many tracked universe and we may have to come to the alarming conclusion that the universe is smarter than we are in the coal mine it's the it was the most vulnerable but it's by no means the only one that is vulnerable and we we haven't really seen anything like the level of protest that we're going to see in Greece pretty much nobody's actually starving at this point they're angry that their expectations are being dashed and and they can no longer find work but the safety net hasn't entirely fallen apart yet it will though 
And so there's going to be a great deal more protest and we're going to see that spread to the rest of the European periphery. We've already seen major protests in Italy, for instance, and Spain. I think we're going to see a lot of protest in, in Portugal. We saw a lot of protest in England last summer and the prime minister there was just itching to put the army on the streets to deal with uh, the rioting. Now, England, of course, isn't part of the Eurozone. The problems there are, are somewhat different. But nevertheless, there's the talk of austerity actually turning into real austerity is going to make people so angry. And it's happening in Europe at the moment because that's where the worst of the leverage is. Uh, the banking system's over-levered, enormously over-leveraged, and the housing bubbles are far larger than in most of North America. So that canary in the coal mine that is Greece, that dynamic is going to spread throughout Europe. And I think it's going to spread far more broadly as well. We're going to realize that we're playing that giant game of musical chairs. There's nowhere near enough to go round. People's expectations are going to be dashed. Live from the capital of Trebekistan, it's the 2012th Annual Collapsi Awards. And tonight, your host is the host of the internationally renowned game show in Jeopardy, Alex Trebekistan. Welcome to the 2012 Annual Collapsi Awards, where we will be honoring only the best in those contributing to Collapse in 2012. Where we will be honoring all sorts of people, from those most responsible for the collapse of industrialized society. For our first award, we go to the individual who has best brought Collapse to children's television. This is not an award we take lightly, folks. This is a big one. The nominees are Barney, Fred Flintstone, and Bohemian Grover. And the award goes to, drumroll please, Bohemian Grover. Hello, it's your old pal Grover. I'm here to accept my award. Let's look at the scene that I won this award for. Today, Sesame Street has been converted into special land for all world's wealthy and elite. Today, we sacrifice Persia to our god Moloch. Yay! Look! Thank you, hooded leaders of the world. Thank you for sacrificing to ensure prosperity and economic growth. Yay! For our next award, we go to the individual who has brought collapse to journalism. Now, this is not an award that we we had to look very far for. There was a clear winner of this award, but we have to list the nominees anyway. The nominees are Tom Friedman, that guy who likes lamps in Anchorman, Daniel Jurgen, and Sean Hannity. And the winner is Sean Hannity. How y'all doing tonight? It is great to see a lot of great Americans in this room. God bless you all. It is time to embrace what Reagan called our rendezvous with destiny to guarantee that America for our children and grandchildren will be a shining city on a hill. Let us all join together to protect, defend the single greatest, best country God has ever given man. 
America is, as Reagan said, the last great hope for man on this earth. We pray God blesses America. God bless America. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. Our next award goes to the currency collapse of the year. Now, there's been a lot of collapsing around the globe, so we had to look long and hard to find the right one. This year's nominees are the Euro, the Vietnamese Dong, and the Greek Drachma. And the winner is... The Vietnamese Dong! Here to accept the award is the local, friendly, neighborhood, secret shadow banker man. Uh, yes, hello, hello. I am actually the person who's in charge of nearly all the trading on the foreign currency markets, and I live right next to you. It's, it's unbelievable. I think that it's quite an honor to accept this award on behalf of the current manipulation I've been doing on the Vietnamese dong. Despite pouring tons of liquidity on the dong, it, it still has uh, failed to firm up its market situation. It's, it's absolutely just getting by all the other currency markets, and I'm hoping that here in the future that the dong can start receiving the respect it clearly deserves. Thank you. This is a plethora of disasters striking the globe. No wonder that 2012 has been heralded as the end of the Mayan calendar and the end of the world as we know it. The nominees for the best disaster are Tornadoes, Floods in Thailand, and Fukushima. And the winner is... The disaster that put the FU in nuclear power, Fukushima! Here to accept the award is His Eminence, Godzilla. It's like Godzilla is crashing and taking over the whole place with his fire. Run for your life! Run for your life!